We teach what we most need to learn. Joshua Friedman. Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast for episode number 202. With someone I've been wanting to speak with since the early days of launching our podcast. He's a specialist on emotional intelligence with connections that link him to Daniel Goleman's earliest work as the CEO and one of the co-founders of Six Seconds, the global community growing emotional intelligence that began in 1997, around the time that I had my aha moment and realized how important these skills are for our students in the classroom. He's an educator, author of five books, researcher and parent who translates the latest neuroscience of emotion into practical insights that we can all use to connect, solve problems, lead, and live better lives. Before I introduce you to this week's guest, I've got to say that for someone who spearheaded the movement of EQ in our schools and workplaces for over three decades, his humble and kind nature will show you that he practices what he teaches. Welcome back. I'm Andrea Samadhi, author and educator from Toronto, Canada, now in Arizona. And like many of you who tune in, have been fascinated with learning, understanding, and applying the science behind high-performance strategies that we can all use to improve our productivity in our schools, our sports, and workplace environments. My vision is to bring the experts to you share their books, resources, and ideas to help you to implement their proven strategies, whether you're a teacher working in the classroom or in the corporate environment. Let's get right into this topic and meet this week's guest, Joshua Friedman, the CEO of Six Seconds, and dive into the field of emotional intelligence in our schools, sports, and workplace environments. I know that after these questions, we'll look at emotional intelligence with a new lens. Welcome, Joshua. It's so wonderful to meet you after all these years of following your work. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited. Well, Joshua, I don't know if you know this or even if you remember, because I know that you do so many interviews, but when we first launched this podcast, I did reach out to you and I even had a spot on your calendar, but you're the only interview to date that I've actually lost connection before we started, but as well that I wrote the week of and said that I needed more time to research you because I didn't feel fully prepared for our interview. Do you remember our podcast and and that happening back in the day? Uh, I I wish I could say that I did remember, but. (laughs) Okay, that's okay. I know you have so many, so I'm glad that you you don't remember the specific time, but. (laughs) What actually happened, I do read everybody's book and I come up with some questions on how their work applies to the field of SEL and neuroscience. And when I began to research you, I saw where your work began. And then I realized that I really needed to think about your questions as one of the leaders behind this movement. And so really a sincere thank you for speaking with me today and letting me thoroughly prepare the questions for you so we can dive deeper into this topic about how to get results with emotional intelligence. Fantastic. Okay, so while I was researching your background, I listened to some of your interviews and I was surprised to see that your introduction to this field came in a very similar way to mine. And we were both first year teachers. You were in California and I was a first year teacher in Toronto. And uh, we were both overwhelmed with our experiences. So can you go back to those early days and think about what was missing back then? Why do you think we both felt ill-equipped? I mean, honestly, I I, I suspect that every teacher feels ill-equipped because (laughs) there's just, it's such a complicated job, really. I mean, if you if you want to do a good job as an educator, you're juggling so much and a whole, you know, bunch of students with all of their own needs and your own your own needs and um, the academic and the social and emotional 
it's just a lot. And I, I just remember um, this huge stack of binders on my desk back, back when we used to have binders. Right. Oh yeah. I remember binders. And, um, and I had two of my middle school students, their parents were going through a divorce and I was an advisor and I had no training on being an advisor. I had no idea what that was, what I was supposed to do. And, um, and I remember going to these like parent events and all these parents would ask me questions about parenting and I had never, <laughs> I didn't have kids. And, right. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of pieces of, of, of perspective. And I, I think now looking back on it, if I, if I were to do it again and I could sort of time travel, I would take this perspective that my job as a teacher isn't to know. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I think we have the, just the word teacher sounds like, well, I'm going to tell you. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's no longer what it means to me. Yeah, that's good. That's good because I really connected with your story and it brought me back to counting down the days till summertime. That was what my life was like. And this was my first year. I thought, this isn't what I signed up for. And and I remember I had this um, red buzzer on the wall that would like signify the, the office to come help me. And sometimes no one came. <laughs> pushing this button going, someone come help me. <laughs> and that was like what my life was like. And I thought, is this what I'm supposed to do? And so when, when I heard your story, I thought, you know, how are things different these days, do you think, for teachers? Do you think there's more training in place and we just got the raw end of the deals when we went through our teacher training? Or what do you think? I mean, we've been trying to change this uh, at six seconds but i mean for example i'm like the seventh adjunct from the left in a program at columbia teachers college for aspiring principals and so these are people who are 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 educators who've been in the field for a while and now wanting to move into leadership it's a wonderful program that has a a very strong piece of mindfulness and emotional intelligence and I teach a course together with some colleagues on emotional intelligence for leadership. And our students are kind of stunned by the by digging into their emotions and realizing how much they have suppressed their own feelings and how much they're culturally trained to push away feelings. And many of our students say, I wish I had this in my teacher training. I wish I had this when I was a student. Right. And we're making, I think, tremendous progress. And, you know, like the work you're doing, having a podcast that a lot of people are listening to, there's a lot more awareness now. And I think we're still scratching the surface. You're exactly right. Because I actually opened up the uh, this podcast, I did the backstory and I opened it up with, we teach what we most need to learn. And you said that. And I thought, you know, as I'm going through this, I always say to everybody, I wish I knew this when I was a teacher, would it have changed things? You know, I just, everything, every single person I speak to, I say the same thing. I wish I knew this when mm-hmm. I was a teacher, just thinking back to those days. So but, but if we rethink teaching and we say, I don't need to know all this stuff. What I need to do is learn, learn out loud. Right. 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 And really shift the, I, I mean, this is how I feel as a, as a leader. Um, sometimes I get sucked into that. Oh, well, you're the CEO. You have the answers. And sometimes I get sucked into that in my own brain. And when I can let go of that and say, I'm the CEO, which means I'm the chief learner and I don't have the answers, but I can bring people together to ask big questions and come up with great answers. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a wonderful place to live, both in terms of increasing effectiveness and engaging people, but also in terms of getting better answers. And that's very freeing as well to not have to know everything. Yeah. I mean, this is a, 
kind of sidebar, but during the pandemic, I had I had never imagined being a leader in a circumstance like like this. And early in the pandemic, I thought we might lose the organization. You know, we had ter- like huge losses of revenue, massive uncertainty, and I was starting to. Uh, really lose my equilibrium because I was trying to carry everything. And I had one of my um, relatively young colleagues um, and I got into a conversation about this. And I mean, it's hard for me to talk about this without crying. He said to me, it's our organization, not just yours. And what we were talking about is that it's, yes, I have this responsibility, but it's our responsibility. And um, just felt this incredible weight lift off, but also (laughs) in some ways felt even more determined to to make it work. Mm -hmm. Uh, Running a company, everything's on your shoulders. I know that. And to... This makes me think about how you renamed your organization as a network because you are a global organization and the amount of people that follow you. I've been watching you for years and following your work. So it's a global network of people trying to learn and improve the education and workplace, the two that I see that you're focused on. Yeah, we really are looking at the idea that the the way you create change in the world is from a systemic approach. And, you know, sometimes when I think about, okay, we really want kids to learn these skills. Well, how are kids going to learn these skills if their adults don't learn these skills? So if we think about going back to Brenner's systems theory of learning and, you know, really foundational ideas about how kids learn anything. Um, and, you know, yeah, they can watch a video, but that's a, a very superficial aspect of learning. If we really want a deeper, meaningful learning, then the system in which that child is living and growing, uh, the system needs to support that learning. And uh, the systems that we're in support a certain kind of learning. And a lot of the things that kids learn from those systems is pretty, pretty destructive. And then we end up having, you know, <laughs> to be grownups going, wow, I wish I'd learned this when I was young. Right, right. How things would have changed. Even um, I've said it a million times on this podcast and understanding that my cortisol as it increases made my students' cortisol increase. If I only was told that day one, things would have been different. When I was pressing that buzzer, I was probably making it way worse. <laughs> Come help me. I sure grappled with that when I had preschoolers as, in, in my, as a parent, <laughs> like realizing, okay. Oh, yeah. Self-regulation has to, for me, has to come first before I can help them regulate. Well, this is interesting. So it's bringing me to my next question because the field has come so far um, since those early days that we just reflected back on. And I know that when I first saw these skills, I saw it just by chance in the late 90s. I actually saw it with a motivational speaker that was working with 12 kids with things like attitude and goal setting. And he turned these 12 kids around and I was like, wow, if only I could do that with my 38 kids in, in, in the classroom, you know, life would be so much different. So that was my aha moment. Um, can you tell me how you made the connection with the meaning behind six seconds? So you named your company Six Seconds. Um, how, how did you name it that? Where did you get the skills and the competencies to come up with six seconds back then before any of us were thinking about how SEL connects to the brain? Well, going back further, um, the, one of our co-founders, Karen McCown, started a school in 1967. And she stumbled on this concept that back then was called confluent education. 
the flowing together of the affective domain, as it was called, and the cognitive domain. And early theory on this was, you know, well, maybe that would create more uh, learning if those two things were working together. And now we have a ton of neuroscience that, that shows that when we activate hot cognition, when we have emotional engagement in the brain, the social brain functions more effectively, when the social brain functions more effectively, that's when learning actually happens because we don't have a brain for math, we have a social brain. So when we can activate the brain, um, learning works better. But back in 1967, they were just guessing about that. And um, Karen McCown, our, our, one of our co-founders, was talking with some Nobel laureates. And one of them said to her, you know, I, I studied math my whole life. I loved math. I've been nurtured in math, but I never really learned about myself. And if I had learned about myself, I think I would have been a better mathematician, but I certainly would have been a better person. And so she took that charge on to say, well, how do we do that? And started experimenting. And then in 1978, published um, a curriculum called Self-Science. The subject is me and like learning about yourself. And then when Dan Goleman came and visited the school, he said, wow, you guys are teaching emotional intelligence. So there was a, a rich history before I came along and um, I was teaching there in 1992. In 1995, we started um, hearing a lot from Dan Goleman's book being published. And then in 97, we decided to start the organization. But the, the, the reason for the name was uh, really came from Candace Pert, who is one of our advisory board members. She was a chief of brain sciences at the National Institutes of Health. And she is the person who um, discovered that our, our prefrontal cortex, which used to be perceived as like the seat of reason, has emotional receptors. And why would you have emotion receptors in this hyperlogical part of the brain? Well, the answer, according to Candace, is that it's because we're wired to have our emotions and thinking work together. And she said the emotion is like a, a communication system within our brains and bodies. And these little messages of, of emotion last four to seven seconds. And we heard that and we said, ah, six seconds is <laughs> a window of opportunity to get these signals and to, to tune in to the meaning of emotion. And if you want to manage emotions, I, I don't really like that word, but you have these little six second windows to do that. Oh, wow. And if you want to access emotion, you have these six second windows to do that. And in that six seconds, we can go on course or off course. Yeah, we make a lot of decisions every day and those decisions take us in some direction. And sometimes it's not the direction we really wanted to go. And so a lot of windows of opportunity to pause and say, wait a minute, there's wisdom here. I'm going to be intentional in this moment instead of just reacting on autopilot. So I get the name now, six seconds. And what I found fascinating was your competencies. So I saw your, um, your model, your six second, e your EQ model, and I put it in the show notes. Now, where I want to go with this is this probably originated before Castle's five competencies came out. And when I first was working with these concepts, I didn't know what competencies were. I just knew what I saw worked with that speaker. And this was even before I had read, read Carol Dweck's book, Mindset. So when I came into the schools with this work, I took Castle's five competencies and, and then Carol Dweck's mindset and put that into my work. But can you kind of go through your model? Because I think it's really effective for how we implement these. And, and thank you for that. And what you just said is exactly why we wanted to make this model. There are a lot of great descriptions of emotional intelligence. Uh, the four quadrants Dan Goleman wrote about, which gave way to the five uh, pieces in the Castle model. But they describe these domains, but they don't give you a process for how. So I mentioned Dan's book came out in 1995. We started getting all these calls from people saying, well, how do you actually do this? How do you develop these skills? How do you use these skills? And we set out to answer that question of how. 
And so we decided that we would make a process. And the six seconds model is a process framework. It's a circle, so you can start anywhere, but we normally start with the, the blue part, know yourself, get the data, tune in. And you collect this data and then the red part, stop. <laughs> and you say, okay, I'm noticing this in the know yourself part. Now, do I have any options? Do I have to react the way that I normally react? Or is there a possibility that I could try something that might, might work better for me? And then the green part is go or grow. We call it give yourself. And it's about connecting with what you really want, connecting with people, connecting with your, your long-term goals, and then saying, how do I choose? How do I make that choice that's going to move me in the direction that I really want to go? So it's not just that we're going to stop and manage emotions, which you know is a, a, not, not a bad idea, but what if we actually use them to move forward, not just manage them, but actually navigate is the word we use, navigate emotions to help us go towards someplace we're going to. And so whether you're talking about, you know, a four-year-old kid or a much older kid, the, this, this notion that our emotions are signals of opportunities and threats. In other words, emotions are telling us about things that are important to us. And if we can harness those emotions to help tune into these things that are important and motivate ourselves, engage ourselves to, to move toward that, now all of a sudden emotions are in service of our, our, our purpose. And that transforms our relationships with emotions to something that's kind of a noise and challenge for us into something that's actually a resource to help us grow. So when I'm thinking about this, I'm connecting it to so many other different places just to make it applicable. So I'm thinking about, let's just connect it to this uh, psychologist, Dr. Daniel Amen, um, who I got my brain scanned with. And, um, and he talks about, you know, is this good for your brain or is this bad for your brain? And then I, I look at your circle and I think, how can we make your three steps applicable in our daily life? Just like, is this good for your brain or, or not good for your brain? Is it, I know myself, um, I'm feeling a certain way, I'm choosing to go a certain way because that certain way is in line with the difference I want to make in my life. Is that, what phrase could you think? To well, I like yours a lot. <laughs> okay, I'll the, the no choose give are the three parts. So it's K C G. Got it. Okay. And so we say, okay, one, two, three, K C G. It's how you practice emotional intelligence. Uh, and there are three questions. What am I feeling? What are my options? What do I really want? Yeah. And you can, you know, again, you can ask a four-year-old these three questions. Uh, you can ask an 84-year-old these three questions, like helping us each on a daily basis practice this process. It's super easy to understand. It takes you know six seconds to get the idea, but practicing it is what really makes the difference. This is really good because you know that that's nowhere else. There's nowhere else to practice this. And I saw it even I'm running this podcast and I started with these competencies and I'm thinking, am I, and, and I'll get to the part in my questions where I know I'm not practicing one of them because it got pointed out to me from my kids. Um, we'll, we'll <laughs> kids are great <laughs> teachers. Oh, aren't boy. oh boy. Um, I can, I can bring it, I can put it in here now because it just makes sense. But you were talking about how you recognized your emotion um, of feeling overwhelmed as a first year teacher. And I remember your response, the response from the director of your school was, hey, you're feeling this way, it just is. And yeah. I say that to my kids all the time, like something happens, like let's say a dish breaks, I say, it just is, it's okay, mm -hmm. let's pick it up. Um, something spills all over the place, makes a big mess. Hey, it just is. There's no need to have emotion around this. So I asked them, hey guys, do you remember me ever saying it just is? 
And their response just blew me away because I thought I was doing so great with this, you know, emotional intelligence stuff. And they said, yeah, you say that all the time, but your face shows how mad you are at the same time. And so I was like, okay, so I would never know. I'm like, it just is as I'm like getting the pan out to sweep up all broken glass everywhere. I had no idea that's the feedback I got. So how do we know that we're not always going to have someone telling us like you're on track with your emotional intelligence unless you ask, how do you know? Well, I have two answers to that question. One is, I mean, your kids gave you a wonderful gift of feedback and there is feedback available to us all the time when we, we look at the way people are responding and whether it's our kids or our colleagues or, you know, people in our lives, we, we have like thousands of little experiments every day where we're showing up, we're asking a question, do people engage? Right? We say, hey, you know, let's talk about this or I want X to happen. And we, we can see from their faces, from their reactions, how we're showing up if we decide to look for that data. Now, I'm an author and publisher of numerous assessment tools. And so I, I would also like to say you can take an emotional intelligence test and get uh, psychometric feedback that helps you understand how you're using these competencies. And there are a couple of different types of assessments, but one of the things that's unique about Six Seconds Approach is that we have this same assessment model the same language, the same framework across the entire age span. And so you can start to develop the vocabulary and practice of emotional intelligence with kids and adults, all, all using the same model. And then if you want to measure it, kids and adults, you can get individual feedback and group feedback to understand where people are. So for myself, um, when I was a teacher, I wasn't actually a big fan of assessments. I, I always felt like, like it, it kind of focused on the, I guess I, I didn't really know the difference between formative assessment and summative assessment back then. I but the, <laughs> the notion that, that the assessment can actually help me build a path to understand not just where I am, but where I want to go. And that's how we use assessments is that they're, they're, it's not just a feedback tool. It's also a feed forward tool and thinking about, okay, here's a pathway for me to, to grow. And we actually developed the world's first artificial intelligence for emotional intelligence. And it's, it's not the truth, it's just data. Uh, just, the, just like the GPS says, you know, here's how to get to the coffee shop. There are other ways. It's just, here's one way that the uh, neural net that we developed gives people a pathway to move towards greater well-being, quality of life, effectiveness, and relationships. So these assessments, could they be used by schools and the workplace? Absolutely. Wonderful. Yeah, and we just came out with the first, uh, we, we came out with the adult artificial intelligence quite a few years ago. And this is like breaking news. I, don't, I haven't shared this really with anyone else before, but we now have the artificial intelligence for kids. And so when kids take the assessment, they can now get recommendations to say, here are some ways that you, based on your profile and where you are, could use your emotional intelligence to get the outcomes you're looking for. Wow. And, and do your assessments break it up into the competencies or how does it work? Yeah, so we have a couple of different models of the assessments. We have a super simplified set of one-page profiles, and then we have more in-depth assessment reports. And the more in-depth reports go into the eight competencies and these three macro areas. And we also, for those who are interested, we do have a mapping of how these competencies match with the CASEL five categories, because a lot of people like that model. Yeah. And when I was working with my program with the schools, I was missing this piece. That's why I have so many questions because mm -hmm. like, if only I knew. Yeah. I mean, we say you get what you measure, mm -hmm. right? And if what you measure is like 
standardized tests, that's okay. But if that's all you're measuring, you know, that's what you end up building your school around. And um, I think we all know there's some issues with that kind of data. Like that's maybe not our ultimate goal as educators. So maybe we need to be measuring other things too. Definitely, definitely. So something I found interesting about learning about our emotions, um, it, it came in a, well, it, it started in our earlier interviews. So we had Dr. Daniel Siegel and he said, name it to tame it. So, mm-hmm. you know, we start to understand why naming our emotions is so important. And then we had Mark Brackett um, with his book, Permission to Feel. And I never really looked at my emotions beyond, you know, this makes me happy and this doesn't make me happy until I took this neuroscience course and we learned about Jack Pancept and the seven emotional systems that he believes map out in the brain. And so I'm trying to always connect the emotions to the brain. And you talked about feeling depressed. Where do you think this sits in our brain? Like I was thinking the panic part of our our circuits, you know, that we're separated, we feel sadness and distress. If, if you were to think about it, where did, where did that feeling of depression, you know, you weren't connecting, where do you think it sat in your brain? So I would say that depression is probably not really a feeling. It's probably a coping strategy. When we are experiencing a lot, and we become overwhelmed by that, we have to do something to cope. And one of the ways that we cope is by putting away the feelings. And that's actually fine. Um, it, it's hard to access and use the feelings when we're putting them away, but it's a reasonable coping mechanism. The, the problem is that for a lot of us, it's hard to then kind of switch that back on and reaccess the feelings. So I think what I experienced when I was a young teacher and feeling depressed, um, and this story of when this happened, it was actually a really lovely moment for me. Um, I, I think I was just, it was like, I can't handle all of the things that I'm feeling. And it was a combination of, um, certainly in that panic category, but also a sense of uh, deep commitment, of love, of, of hope and hopelessness, of powerlessness, of the sense of complexity of the situation. And I labeled that, I feel depressed. And, and the story is I went to the uh, executive director of the school, who's now the president of Six Seconds, Annabelle Jensen. And I said to her, you know, ah, Annabelle, I think I'm er, ah, hem, ha, feeling depressed. And Annabelle did this really strange thing, which is like what normally what people do is, is they say, oh, you're okay, Josh, don't worry. Right. <laughs> and what Annabelle did was she said, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more. And I told her more. And then she said, yeah, it sounds like you have good reasons for feeling depressed. Maybe, maybe that's what you should be feeling given these circumstances. And I said, oh, well, maybe. And then she said, well, why don't you just let yourself feel depressed for a few days? And then if you want help, come back and tell me. And I walked out of her office going, oh, good. All right. Well, I guess I'm depressed. That's great. But it really connects with what you said earlier about it is what it is. And just that acknowledgement of what I'm feeling is legitimate. It's kind of like what Mark Brackett talks about in Permission to Feel. This person uh, for Mark, it was his uncle, this person saying, like, yeah, you're feeling something and that's okay. That acknowledgement that my feelings were 
you know, a reasonable thing to feel. And that uh, went on to transform how I interacted with my students mm-hmm. because I, I, I just felt how powerful it was to just for her, for Annabelle to say, um, you know, whatever you're feeling, it's there for a reason. And you don't have to get stuck in it. You don't have to stay there, but it's okay to stay there for a little while. To name it. And then you tamed it and (laughs) felt acknowledged and everything. Yeah. And um, I think it was uh, Mr. Rogers who said, what's mentionable is manageable. Yeah. And uh, it's kind it's kind of like name it to tame it, but um, I love name it to tame it. And it kind of implies that our emotions are something problematic. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, but if we can talk about it and we can be clear about it, we can maybe work with it. Mm-hmm. What about, you know, what's going on in the world today, um, you know, with the workplace, sometimes we lose the meaning for our work how do we go from losing meaning to making our work meaningful or Mm. like a low trust workplace to building high trust back how do we get those bad feelings and turn them around (laughs) um so first of all i think there are no bad feelings um distrust disenchantment are very difficult and un, and sometimes really unpleasant, sometimes really painful feelings. Um, and they're a message. They're a message from us for us. And it's a message to say, this isn't really working for me. And if, you know, if that happens once or twice, okay, well, that's life, like there are ups and downs. But as we start to see a consistent pattern and a pattern across an organization, of seeing that these are the kind of emotional norms that are coming up here, that's a message to say, oh, this is probably not getting us towards our goals as an institution or as an organization. And so, you know, it could be an individual choice to say, well, I'm going to make some change, which could include leaving your job or changing your job or changing how you work. Uh, If you're in a leadership position, those emotions are an incredibly rich resource for you to say, how is my organization functioning? Just as emotions tell us individually how our organism is functioning, we can look at that organizationally and say, well, what's the level of trust? Trust is an emotion. What's the level of trust here? And if the level of trust is low, then it's unlikely that we're having great conversations, having great learning, having great productivity, having great relationships with our students or customers, depending on the kind of institute, you know, institution it is. And so those emotional messages are an invitation to us to say, and remember emotions are signals of opportunities and threats to say, oh, there's a threat here. And I, w- I want something, I want this organization to be a different way than it is. And actually uh, we measure that at an organizational level um, whether that's with a school or with a other kind of organization. And we can look at, for example, in schools, students, parents, administrators, teachers, staff, community members, and look at trust and, and uh, several other factors, but what's the level of trust? And what's interesting is that I found, just like I found in my personal life, when we can talk about it, what's mentionable is manageable. When we can talk about it and we put it up on a, on a screen and say, so here's what the data says, this is where we are, is this where we want to be? Just that process seems to start unfreezing to say, no, actually, we want to make some change. Oh, this is good. This is powerful for us to all keep in mind and keep practicing and thinking about in all aspects of our life. Thanks for this. What, what are your thoughts? I think this goes back to your question of at six seconds, we work with organizations, we work with governments, we work with prisons, we work with schools, like all, like all of society. And the, the reason is that these uh, kind of foundations of emotion are something that affects every one of us, every relationship, every family, every business, every day. It's like 
we are emotional beings. And if we can become smarter about feelings, which is how I define emotional intelligence, then we can actually start to get better results in all of those places. And it's reminding me of something that I heard you say somewhere where we are broadcasting like a radio station, our emotions. There's no such thing as keep your emotions out of it, right? They're always there whether we want them to be there or not. I think that's super important because there's this myth that's quite pervasive that we can leave emotions out of it. And that somehow be rational means like make better decisions. And what we know from the neuroscience of decision-making is that emotion is how we assess every single decision. Like what, what facts are relevant? That's an emotional choice. What's the priority? That's an emotional choice. What's credible? That's an emotional choice. And so if we're not tuning into the emotional component of the way we're assessing, we are making very skewed decisions. And uh, if on the other hand, we can actually be rational and say, we're not just rational, then we're gonna account for that part of the decision-making as well. So it's um, both in terms of what's happening internally and relationally. We are social animals. And as social animals, it's not like a nice to have that we, we notice each other's feelings. It's literally a matter of survival. And so like, if you are talking about adolescence, I know I remember as a middle school teacher, sometimes thinking like, oh, this, why are they making this such a big deal? Like who really cares who got invited to X, Y, or Z? It's a big deal. It is a matter of survival. We're wired to care deeply about our relationships and the, the emotional contagion effect, the broadcasting of emotion is part of how we navigate that social complexity. Since you've had the vision for this work for over three decades, what have you seen over the years since your early days? Do you think schools and workplaces are taking these skills seriously now compared to your early days of doing this work? I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. <laughs> Uh, the good news is I remember uh, when we started doing this work, I remember being on an airplane and, you know, people always chit chat on an airplane and usually start with, oh, what do you do? And I said, you know, I, I teach emotional intelligence. And this person turned to me and said, emotional what? <laughs> the idea that emotions and intelligence are like, isn't that an oxymoron? Wow. And I think we've come a long way since then. And uh, particularly younger people who I talk to when I, when I have this conversation on an airplane, the answer is now usually, oh, that's awesome. We really need that. That's amazing. And so, and I, and I think the pandemic has exacerbated it because in the last few years, I think in businesses and in schools and in families, we've gotten a visceral experience of the importance of emotion and social connectedness as it relates to the way we learn and, and perform our, our, our work, whatever, whether that's the work of a child or the work of an adult. So there's a great deal of clarity, I think, compared to 30 years ago, that this stuff is important. The bad news is that it's gotten harder. Stress levels have increased, trust levels have gone down. People are more anxious, people are more lonely, people feel disconnected. And this is across the age span, but it's particularly problematic for younger people. And the mental health implications of that are quite dire. And so kids are struggling, educators are struggling, parents are struggling, business people are struggling. The person you know, on the bus is struggling. Like odds are we're all affected by this, this increased uh, discombobulation anywhere on the spectrum from discombobulation to despair. And that makes it harder for us to engage our emotions in a proactive, uh, useful way because they're harder to grapple with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Especially since the pandemic and then wearing masks and having half of our face covered. I saw even in the schools how um, challenging things became with social emotional learning, this whole shift of the pandemic days. It's yeah. And I mean, I, I've talked to a lot of educators who are saying, you know, the kids in my class now are there, there is a learning loss. And yes, some kids are experiencing learning loss around math and reading, but the biggest learning loss is around their social and emotional capabilities. And kids have not been playing together. They've not been communicating. They've not been learning that social problem solving. Uh, they, they haven't learned how to connect and support each other in the same way in these two years. And, you know, coupled with all of the other stressors and the, the, uh, depth of challenge that many families and communities have experienced with people being sick and dying. This is big stuff. And for kids, there's just a lot that they're grappling with. And that means they need a lot more social emotional skills. So this is important now. It was important when we first saw it, and it's important now more than ever. What do you offer at Six Seconds? What would be your main programs that people could go and look at if they're a school or a workplace? So we have a big range of tools and, and training uh, from introductory e-learning courses to in-depth certification training. We take the, the approach to say, let's build capacity and so whether you're a school or a district or, or a company to say, all right, how are we going to infuse this? We need some people who really have expertise in this area that they, they can then spread it inside this, this institution or organization. Uh, we also have assessments and we have uh, a free version of the assessment that's available on the website. And as I mentioned, a lot of e-learning courses and other tools that people can use, lots of stuff that's for free. We have the world's largest social emotional learning program that's 100% free in our partnership with UNICEF World Children's Day. It's available in 200 countries and territories. And it's uh, an introductory curriculum to learn about emotions in a playful, creative way. And, and all of the lessons are linked to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And that's also in 40 languages. Uh, all the way through to um, developing specialization to become a certified social emotional learning specialist or a certified emotional intelligence coach, facilitator, or consultant. So a lot of our work around the world, and, and we have certified professionals in over 150 countries and territories that are bringing these measurement and development tools into their work. Well, I will be sure to put everything in the show notes, links to follow you to your website and your assessments and how to contact you for people that want to send you an email to, to further explore any of these um, tools that you have. Aside from connecting to you on social media channels and following your website, um, is there anything that we've missed that you think is important about six seconds that I haven't asked you? So you mentioned that, that we added uh, the Emotional Intelligence Network to our name back in 2000, 2001. And the genesis of that was one of our first certification courses where we had people coming together and saying, I felt so alone doing this work. We realized that learning these skills is it's easy to get started, but it's not so easy to sustain. And so we decided that we were going to really focus on building a learning community. And as I said, it's people all over the world. And we have uh, free events that are happening virtually every week in some language or country, and um, as well as, as, as trainings and courses. We have a group of network leaders who are volunteers who um, run what we call EQ cafes and it's just an opportunity for people to connect and experience a little bit of emotional intelligence. It's, it's not really a class, it's, it's more of a, a practice opportunity. And our current cafe is on um, empathy and conflict, which 
seems quite needed. The empathy part, the empathy part seems quite needed. We seem to do uh, escalating conflict, um, but we need to get the empathy in there to make that, that conflict into something that's actually healthy and productive. Anyway, I, what I want people to know is that um, you can get started on this by yourself and you can build and participate in community to get the support to keep growing and learning these skills. And I, for myself, being part of this global community is uh, it's deeply meaningful when I see people connecting from all over the world saying, okay, we're here to support each other, to learn and grow and make the world a more emotionally intelligent place. I mean, it brings tears to my eyes just when I log into a Zoom session and I see people checking in from all over the world and realizing we're not alone in this. And I've reached you in Italy today. I didn't even know that. I thought I'd be reaching you in California, but you let me know that, what are you doing in Italy? Are you doing trainings out there? <laughs> I'm doing something super cool. It's Brain Week next week. And uh, one of our um, certified practitioners here runs a foundation for kids who have been diagnosed on the autism spectrum. And for Brain Week, they're doing a three-day program on care for the carers. And how do we tune into emotions and help our emotions fuel us to do the hard work of caring for people who need care? Well, that's phenomenal. Well, I saw a difference with your work the minute that I started researching you. And it made me want to dive a little bit deeper and to really ask you some targeted questions that that I think will help our listeners to really understand how we use these emotional intelligence skills. So I want to thank you so much for speaking with me today, diving deeper into the neuroscience behind our emotions. For anyone who wants to connect with you, I've got all the links to you in the show notes. I want to thank you for the work you're doing in this field, bringing more belief to the fact that our emotions are important guidance systems and that can help us solve problems, connect with others, and live a life with more meaning. Thank you so much, Joshua. Thank you. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.